Let us continue our hearing of God's word for us with Luke 8, 34 through 39. When the swine herds saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then the whole throng of people surrounding the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So the man went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. I wonder how this man got here. I wonder what his life was like before the demons, before the shackles, before the tombs, before the isolation. We know he was from the city. He must have had a house. Maybe he shared it with his parents. He had a mom and a dad, maybe even siblings, brothers and sisters he had grown up with, playing and learning together. Did he get in trouble for pushing his little brother in a moment of frustration? Was he subjected to teasing from his older sister when she discovered he'd had a crush? Who was his best friend? Had he ever been in love? How did he spend his time? He must have had a job. Maybe he was a carpenter or a potter, someone who used his hands to create, to make something new, something sturdy and beautiful. This kind of faithful imagining matters because we don't know anything about him apart from what we find in those 14 verses from Luke's gospel. He is just a man possessed by demons. I wish, I wish that I knew his name. I wish that I knew something uh, other about him, some other identifier beyond demoniac or legion. I don't want to define him by this thing that has happened to him by the evil he was forced to endure, because this is his story. He is more important than this moment. This is his story. For the writer of Luke's gospel, this is a story about Jesus, about the power and compassion of Jesus, about the way Jesus enacts God's kingdom. Jesus' power is on display in the way that the demons recognize him and cower in his presence. His compassion in the way that he sets the man free, releases him from the bonds that kept him in the tombs. That's good. It is what the Gospels are for, to tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. Jesus is obviously a vital actor in this narrative, He does something miraculous and powerful and helpful. So it is deeply important to our faith and to our understanding of who God is to see Jesus, who is God incarnate, interact with this person in the midst of suffering. This story of healing then matters theologically and it raises important questions. 
For me, I saw a theological story. In full transparency, it's why I chose this text. We've reached the Deliver Us from Evil week in our Lord's Prayer sermon series. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the problem of evil, contemplating the theological implications, searching for answers about what evil is, who is responsible for it, and what those answers say about who God is and who we are. I wanted to dive deeply into an existential exploration of who and what in this story are evil and what deliverance would look like existentially. That matters, and I'm not likely to stop pondering those questions. Um, And true to form, I also chose this text uh, for this week that I might be able to make some big claims about what evil really is, uh, to name the community who shunned him as evil, and that he is delivered from isolation, to insist that systems and structures that force people out of community, out of sight, and out of care simply for being problematic are the real evil that this world needs to be delivered from. Don't get me wrong, that that might still happen. Um, But I came to this text with something very particular in mind. I had an agenda when I chose it. And yet, this is a human story, a story about a man who endured something horrific and came out on the other side changed and I cannot bear to use him, this nameless man who experiences pain and isolation that I cannot even begin to fathom, I cannot bear to use him as a tool for theological or systematic reflection, or to gloss over his suffering so that I might celebrate the compassion of Jesus. The more I sit with this text, the more I am convinced that he is the most important person. He is the story. Because I think that when we focus on the good God of it all, when we see the deliverance, when we insist on the existential meaning, we forget about the very real human lives uh, that have been transformed, those who have struggled and hurt and hoped. And worse, we forget those who are still awaiting deliverance. I cannot make this story a primer on how God delivers us all from evil, on the need to end oppressive systems without telling his story, without telling the human story. I can't do it without seeing him. I do not want to forget about him. Jesus didn't. Our man is a character in Luke's gospel, but he was a child of God, a part of God's good creation, Uh, a child of God who was not living in the way that God intended, away from community, without uh, without care or compassion, unable to create and love and participate. He was alone, and he was isolated, and he was in pain, and Jesus saw him. For Jesus, he was not a problem to be solved. He was not an opportunity to demonstrate power. He was a man shrieking, naked, afraid, and homeless, who fell at the feet of Jesus, desperate to be seen, to be delivered. Jesus saw him when it seems like no one else could or would. So in the same way that I wonder who he was before he lived with Legion in the tombs, I wonder again how 
he ended up here. I imagine that it was slow, an almost subtle change. Maybe those closest to him were the only ones that noticed at first. Maybe he snapped at his mother unexpectedly. Maybe he was unable to sleep and paced around the house at night. I have to believe that his people, the ones who knew him, tried to talk to him, tried to help him sort out what was happening, at first anyway, because we know eventually he was no longer able to be in the city. When did he become uncontrollable and violent? Did he cry out in anguish loudly enough that the neighbors heard him? Did he refuse to leave the house for days on end? When did he lose so much of himself that he was deemed beyond help? When was any hope for recovery lost? I imagine him being apologetic, trying to explain to his neighbors, to those in power, that, that this wasn't him. He didn't want to be angry or loud or violent. He wasn't in control of himself anymore. He and his family must have asked for help, sought deliverance from leaders and healers, but there was nothing that could be done. He had been seized by something that was beyond their understanding, beyond their control, and he could not be allowed to carry on like this, carry on like the rest of them, like the normal people. His community couldn't see him anymore. They could only see a problem, a danger, those people who had once surrounded him, friends, family, neighbors, could no longer look upon this man and see a person. And perhaps he saw himself the same way, no longer recognizing himself, seeing more of a monster than a man, and so he had to go. Driven into the wild by the very thing that was bent on stealing his humanity from him, driven into isolation because his community could not or would not contain him. They could no longer bear to have him around. For years and years he was kept in isolation, tormented by this force inside of him, guarded by the men from the city, bound with chains that likely broke his body as he broke free from them, existing, hurting. And I cannot imagine, truly cannot imagine what that must have been like literal years of this. After what must have felt like a lifetime of brokenness and pain, here comes Jesus. And our man wouldn't have known him. It isn't likely that he would have laid eyes on Jesus before. He may not have even heard of the troublemaking rabbi who was gaining followers and performing miracles. The person stepping off the boat didn't mean much to him. And yet, the thing inside of him knew exactly who had arrived on their shores. This is the, the Son of God, the one, possibly the only one, who can send the demons back from whence they came. When Jesus showed up, they had already lost. They would no longer have control. They would no longer be able to inflict pain or isolate. The reign of terror is already at an end, so all the demons can do is ask for mercy. Where Legion felt panic and fear, our man might have felt a twinge, the smallest twinge of hope, just the vaguest flicker of something other than torment, a feeling so foreign he might not even have recognized it. Maybe he looked at Jesus, who was looking back at him, looking at both the man and the thing inside of him, and then realized that Jesus saw him. Jesus wasn't looking past him, or through him, or away from him. 
Jesus saw the divine spark, the image of God that was still inside of him, that had never left him. And so suddenly this man is no longer what he was, what he had been labeled, what he had labeled himself. He was no longer legion, but himself. Jesus releases him, sending the demons out into the pigs as they had requested, and away from the child of God who had languished for so long. Think about that first breath when he was himself again, when he was free. Relief is not a strong enough word to cover what I imagine that felt like. I think about him looking around and maybe like patting himself softly, trying to determine if this was real, to convince himself that it had happened. Because how could it be? After so much hurt and loss, how could there be anything good? But Jesus is still there. And maybe Jesus extended a hand to him, squeezing his fingers just enough to ground him. Everyone else is watching the pigs hurl themselves into the sea, and I don't blame them. But Jesus, I imagine, is holding eyes with and smiling at our man, no longer a demoniac, just a man. And then maybe Jesus grips his hands a little tighter and says, oh, there you are, my child. There you are. Perhaps they started laughing or crying or some combination of the two because this man is free. He is now once again who he was created to be. I imagine them, after finding some clothes, walking for a bit, just the two of them, talking about what had happened, about what might happen next. Perhaps Jesus reminded him of who he was and who he had always been. Maybe they just enjoyed some companionable silence until they eventually sit with the rest of Jesus's companions. Our man hearing about the kingdom of God for the first time, learning from the person who saw him and freed him, it must have felt so good. Then members of his city come rushing to the spot of his healing, once the space of his torment, to see this impossible thing that had happened, to get confirmation that it had happened. And the panic of a life of isolation and mistrust come flooding back to him. What must they think of him? Do they hate him? Are they still afraid of him? Will they ever trust that he is okay, that he is free? And what an awful confirmation it must be for him when his community, when the people who had been his friends ask Jesus to leave. They are so gripped with fear at this miracle that Jesus has to go. Shouldn't shouldn't they be celebrating? This brother of theirs who knew nothing but pain for years is now himself again. Perhaps it is a fear of change. They had grown used to the devil that they knew, and now Jesus had turned their world on its head. Perhaps having had this evil to focus on had freed them from having to examine their own lives, and without this guy to otherize and blame, what else is there? Perhaps it is just a power that they could not fathom, so they asked Jesus to go. Jesus doesn't fight. He doesn't push back. He has done his job here, and now he will be needed elsewhere. So Jesus heads back to his boat so they can cross back to the other side, to where he and his disciples came from. But, but what of our man? How could he go back? How could he go back to where he once lived? How could he go back to the people who had sent him away? Please, Jesus, 
he begs, please let me come that I may follow you. Surely that's the next best step, the best option. Jesus, however, insists that he stays. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Go home and tell your friends, your community, what happened here. Tell them your story. And at first blush, I admit that Jesus' response feels callous. This man has been through hell, and he doesn't want to go back to a place that holds fear for him. But I think that after a lifetime of being bound by something, Jesus will not allow himself to bind him to be bound by something else. He is free. And I'm not saying that following Jesus would be trading one oppressor for another, but Jesus is inviting him to make the most of his freedom. Jesus asks him to go and offer freedom to the others. Toni Morrison once said, the function of freedom is to free someone else. And that is exactly what Jesus asks from him. Go home and tell your friends what good God has done for you. Jesus tells him to combat evil by telling them what I saw in you, a person who even in the midst of something terrible and unimaginable was not beyond saving, someone who was worth seeing and saving and knowing. Tell them that God saw you and that God sees us all. Tell them that there is hope, that they are not alone, and that they will know freedom too. And so our man does exactly as he is bid. He goes back to his city and he tells his story. I wonder what his life was like after this healing, his life of freedom thanks to an encounter with the Son of God. I am sure he is met with more than his fair share of side-eye. People probably go out of their way to cross the street when they see him, whispering about him, maybe even pointing. And I also have to believe that his sister threw her arms around his neck and lamented how thin he was and insisted on fixing him a plate or four. Nieces and nephews that he had not yet met, peppering him with a million questions, sometimes inappropriate ones, about where he came from and who he is. Old friends doing their best to protect him from the ugly comments that people made about him. It wouldn't have been easy, and it would have taken time, but he would have kept telling his story. And people, not all of them surely, but some would have listened, and lives would have been changed because of it. Our man's story becomes one of freedom, not without challenge or disappointment, not a perfect life, but he is free. He is seen and known and loved by his creator. He has been delivered from evil, and he is living as God intended him to in freedom and hope with possibility. I have no deep theological claims for you this morning, no rants about systemic evils, no charge to tear down oppressive structures and fight evil. You can draw those conclusions on your own. Uh, who knows where the Holy Spirit will lead you? She is wild like that. I just offer you this story, this faithful imagining of a man who has been delivered from heartache and pain, a story of a human forced out of his community who was seen by his creator, seen and saved by the God who loves him. I tell it because this is our story. 
whether we are the ones languishing, waiting for deliverance and searching for hope, or whether we are the community who is fighting the urge to look away from those who are, it is a human story. We face the world full of all of its brokenness and wait for freedom, for Jesus to show up and transform us. I don't have great answers this morning for where evil comes from or when deliverance will arrive for each of us, but I do know, I know that God sees us. God sees us and knows us and loves us. God does not define us by the bad. God intends for us to live in community, to know and share compassion, and to reflect God's image in this world that God loves. And God calls us to speak out against evil, to refuse to turn away. I hope that you know in the deepest part of your hearts, right in the deepest part, that you are known and seen and loved, and that you are not alone. So, beloved, go home and tell your friends. Maybe also look in the mirror and tell yourself. Tell them who they are. Look them in the eye, see a person, and proclaim the goodness of God. May we all be so free. Amen.